You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Someone who reads my column, Savage Love, in the Detroit Metro Times brought a courtroom drama in Michigan to my attention over the weekend, and I am so grateful to you, Bill. A mom and a dad, conservative Christians, fundamentalists, have been ordered by a court to pay their son nearly $30,000 after they threw away their son's porn collection. First things first. Most porn collections these days are stored online. If you even have a porn collection, it's most likely a bunch of links in your browser history that you forgot to delete. Not Michigan's Dave Working. He's the son in the story, and his porn stash filled a room in his parents' basement. And when his parents found it, when they found his more than 1,600 DVDs and 400 VHS tapes, along with two boxes of sex toys, And a tambourine, which is not a sex toy, but as they say on the internet, anything's a dildo, if you're brave enough, so who can say where that tambourine has been? Anyway, after Dave Working's parents, Paul and Beth Working, found his porn in their basement, they trashed it. They got rid of it. They destroyed, that's his father's word, they destroyed the 14 moving boxes full of porn and sex toys they found in their basement and most likely an innocent tambourine. It took quite a while, Paul Working wrote his son in an email on the day the wicked deed was done, took quite a while to destroy all of it. But frankly, David, I did you a big favor by getting rid of all of this stuff for you. Dave Working sued his parents in federal court. And with his father's emailed admission to the crime having been entered into evidence, Dave Working won his lawsuit. The court ordered his fundamentalist Christian parents to pay him the full value of all that porn, which Dave Working himself estimated at $29,000. His parents insisted that that was too much money, and the court allowed them to hire an expert, a sexologist from the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas, to put a value on all that destroyed porn. And that expert that the parents hired at their own expense put the value of the porn at $31,000, which means mom and dad working are out an additional two grand plus the fee they had to pay to the sexologist from the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas. The Erotic Heritage Museum is directly across the street from the Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas because of course it is. All right, back to the story. I was on Team Dave Working when I read the short summary that my reader, again, thank you, Bill, said along to me. I mean, yeah, of course I was. My first impulse in a dispute between fundamentalist Christian parents and some horny kid is to take the horny kid's side. Mom and dad, Paul and Beth, they tossed poor Dave's porn collection. What assholes. But after clicking through the summary and finding my way to Francis X. Donnelly's almost comically thorough reporting on this case in the Detroit news. I am no longer on team Dave working. I am now on team Paul and Beth working. I find myself in the strange and unfamiliar position of siding with fundamentalist Christian parents in a dispute with a horny kid. I'm not questioning the judgment of the Ottawa County Sheriff who said what Paul and Beth did was a crime. I am not second guessing the decision handed down by the Honorable Paul L. Maloney, 
the sitting justice of the United States District Court in the Western District of Michigan, who found for Dave working. But Jesus Christ, do yourself a favor right now and look up Francis Donnelly's fully reported out piece on this case in the Detroit News and see if you don't come down on the side of the fundy Christian parents too. Dave working isn't some teenager whose parents tossed his porn or some 23-year-old who had to move home during the pandemic. He's a 42-fucking-year-old adult, and he moved back in with his parents after his wife threw him out for refusing to even look for work to support his family, which he said to his wife he couldn't do because he's an artist. And even after not hearing a word from their son for seven years, Dave Working's parents agreed to take him in, to let him move back home rent-free on just one condition— that he not bring porn into the house, which he did anyway. All right, I got to stop. There's no way I can do Francis Donnelly's piece in the Detroit News justice. I can't communicate everything that's so fascinating about the warring workings here without dedicating the entire show to the story, which has everything. Donnelly, who deserves a Pulitzer, has emails going back and forth between Dave Working and his parents, Paul and Beth, and his ex-wife going back years, going back to when Dave Working was in high school. There's a list of the titles of the missing porn movies, which are, of course, hilarious. And it turns out, and this is not so hilarious, that Dave Working may have owned the only copies in existence for some of these films, which means they're lost forever. And there's a mysterious safety deposit box, because of course there is where Beth Working hid 44 of the, quote, worst of the worst movies she found in her son's porn collection in order to essentially blackmail her own son later. This is like a story by Charles Dickens or a novel by Charles Dickens, a bookstep of a novel by Charles Dickens. The name of the protagonist is Dickensian David Working, spelled with an E-R like jerking, a guy who refuses to get work. Hell, one of the missing films is titled Great Sexpectations. But... Reading this, it's a lot more like Bleak House with crates of porn and a greasy tambourine standing in for conflicting wills, and you're going to want to read this. And Hollywood, you're going to want to get on this. Jack Black and Danny McBride, if you guys listen to my podcast or anybody who knows you guys <laughs> listens to my podcast, get your managers on the phone immediately and buy the rights to Donnelly's story. Either of you guys could play the shit out of David Working. And Netflix documentaries, uh, get on this. It's not a murder. Well, not yet. Anything could happen. But working versus working could be the next Tiger King. And we're going to need a new Tiger King with 41% of Republicans, motherfuckers, refusing to get vaccinated compared to just 4% of Democrats. And scientists telling us we won't reach herd immunity as a result of all this Republican refusal to get vaxxed. We're all going to need a new true crime documentary to lose our minds over once we're locked back in our houses six months from now. Joe Exotic got us through the pandemic spring of 2020. Dave Working could get us through the pandemic fall of 2021. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, I speak with Dr. Alan Davis about his new study on mushrooms as a treatment for depression. Turns out shrooms may be more effective, a more effective treatment for depression than all those pills we're popping. That's on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm an early 40s straight cis man who's polyamorous, and I have a slightly weird quarantine success story because it mostly revolves around not having sex. A year and a half ago, I was at a play party at a friend's house. I met this woman there that I was instantly attracted to and who seemed totally out of my league. 
But early on, I found myself sitting next to her. So I tried to chat her up and we wound up connecting on a bunch of things. But it started with the fact that we're both big fans of the Savage Lovecast. Anyways, it felt like there was mutual interest, but we didn't manage to reconnect at the party. Afterwards, we friended each other on social media, and I made clear that I'd be interested in dating. But she was a working single parent of two kids and polysaturated at the time. So it just wasn't in the cards. And instead, for over a year, we just maintained this occasionally flirty online chat friendship, connecting every month or few over this topic or that. But fast forward to December of this last year, over a year after we'd met, and she matched with me on a dating app and sent me a flirty message about having a sex dream about me. Something about it just stuck out as different, so I hit her up for a phone call, which wasn't our usual medium, and she enthusiastically accepted. What followed was a really intense, distanced dating experience. It ramped up within just a week or so to us talking on the phone basically every single night for an hour or two. Uh, Her existing relationships hadn't survived the pandemic, and neither had most of mine, so we were both home nearly every single night and basically binge-dated each other by connecting through the phone calls every night, along with distance hikes and backyard hangouts, plus lots of sexting and phone sex and Zoom sex. Long story short, we quickly fell in love, like, really hard. We were two very slutty, very poly people who fell in love without having had sex uh, hell, we hadn't even so much as hugged each other. And then fast forward to today, and thanks to vaccination, we've finally been able to share air regularly for the last few weeks. And let me say, getting to have sex after a really long, flirty buildup is kind of mind-blowing, but we still talk on the phone nearly every single night for a solid one to two hours each time. Dan, this is the healthiest and most amazing relationship I've ever been in. It has the craziest origin story. We met in an orgy and didn't fuck. And then we started dating during a pandemic and couldn't touch. But we built the relationship on the back of a year-long flirty friendship. And we connect on so many different levels that it's crazy. So I, I just wanted to call and share the weirdness and wonderfulness of it all, particularly because technically you helped make it happen since you were part of that very first conversation that we had. So thank you, Dan. You and the tech-savvy at-risk youth helped jumpstart a really amazing relationship. And to everyone else, go get your damn shot. This may be one of my favorite success stories ever, not just because the Savage Lovecast and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy, never forget Nancy, played some small role in bringing you two together. But my God, you met at an orgy, didn't touch each other, then you couldn't touch each other for a year, but you kept reaching out to each other and had a kind of... Victorian long distance letter writing phone call making courtship. It sounds wonderful. And I'm so glad that you guys found each other in the midst of all of this chaos and drama. Thank you for calling. Thank you for sharing your success story. Listeners, if you'd like me to begin next week's Savage Lovecast with your sex success story, give us a call, share. We might open next week's show with yours. Hey, Dan, a woman here in her early 30s living in Washington. My sister has been in a long-term relationship with my brother-in-law for about 12 years now, mainly because of my sister's mental health issues and addiction issues. Their relationship has been a roller coaster from the get-go. A few years ago, they legally married and had my little nephew, who's about two now. Right before COVID, his youngest brother, who he's really close with, uh, moved in with them after a breakup. 
The short of it is, according to both of them, they're at a real low point. Uh, my sister is not making healthy steps to deal with her mental health issues, and they both work a lot of hours that are conflicting, so they don't see each other that much and um, are basically just co-parenting at this point. I guess when my brother-in-law told my sister that something needed to change or they'd have to separate, she suggested an open relationship and also suggested that she wanted to sleep with his live-in brother. Based on what they've both told me, it doesn't sound like they have any ground rules established. My brother-in-law went on a date with a co-worker recently, I guess, and um, my sister felt super insecure about it and broke down for a week and was a wreck. But my sister is sleeping with his younger brother, like, in their own house. He is having a real hard time apparently with it, and it sounds like that house is really uncomfortable to be in right now, and I don't blame him. In the past, they've often shared a lot of information like this to me, and I've tried just to somehow listen to both of them and be there for them, try to be a neutral party, but this time I can't really help but feel a lot of judgment and anger towards my sister. The whole situation just seems so fucked up and is on the verge of imploding, um, with my nephew being the biggest casualty. So I don't know what I can do in this situation. I really want to help my nephew and make sure he grows up in a stable environment and I just kind of feel helpless. Is there anything I can do or I guess more importantly what I shouldn't do? Oh my god, what a mess. There's actually not a lot here that you can do if you're not willing to involve child protective services, instigate an investigation, possibly have that kid, your two-year-old nephew, removed from your sister's home and offer to take that kid in yourself, that kid to be placed with you, which you may not be in a position to do. But my God, if you are in a position to do that, you might want to consider it. It would be the quickest way to ensure that your nephew is growing up in a stable environment. That would be to provide him with a stable environment. Backing up, you talk about the brother like he's a potted plant. Your sister is sleeping with her brother-in-law. Well, her brother-in-law is fucking his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, your sister. What the fuck does he think he's doing? And why is your brother-in-law putting up with this? You say the brother moved in because of COVID. Well, he can move the fuck out because his presence is disruptive because of the drama. Obviously, your sister and her husband can't be in an open relationship. If she's going to have a meltdown if when he goes on a date, even as she is fucking his brother under the same roof with him and their two-year-old child, neither of them is healthy enough to be in an open relationship. And they need to close this relationship and remain, I guess, celibate for the time being. And you could... Encourage your sister to seek the mental health care that she so desperately needs, if not for her own sake, for the sake of her child. But the only stick you have to wield here is the threat of calling the authorities, of involving child protective services. It doesn't have to go that far. You could offer, you could say to your sister, so much drama, so much chaos in your house right now. Why don't you let my nephew, your son, come and stay with me? Come and live with me for a little bit. When I was a kid, my mom took in a nephew and two nieces. They lived with us for, I think, a couple of years while their parents were struggling with addiction issues, with mental health issues. And that was traumatic for those kids. It's traumatic to be taken away from your parents, even if your parents are in crisis, even if your parents can't take care of you. It is traumatic. And you have to weigh whether it would be 
more traumatic for your nephew to stay in this home. And to make that judgment, you need to make an honest assessment that you're not just reacting in a panic about the sex that your sister is having that your nephew is probably at age two unaware of and overreacting to that sex because it is so shocking that if your sister was going to choose another sex partner, she would choose her husband's sibling who happens to be living with them as the person she opened the relationship for. That's shocking, but it's not something that your nephew is probably consciously aware of. But you say there are mental health issues. You say there's chaos. You say there's drama. And it's not just the sex that I assume that you're referring to. So, yeah, unless you're willing to offer to take that kid in and provide the stable environment, unless you're willing to involve CPS, in which case that kid could wind up in foster care if CPS doesn't select you or if you don't volunteer, all you can do in a circumstance like this is yell and scream and implore. And that's frustrating because we've all been there with some relatives where you yell and scream and implore and nothing changes and it gets no better. And when there are small kids involved, it does feel like a hostage situation. And when you can't do anything about it, when you can't rescue the hostage, that's a terrible feeling. And my heart goes out to you that you have to eat that potentially, that you have to watch all of this unfold Watch your nephew potentially be harmed, not by the sex necessarily or solely, but by the mental health issues, by the conflict, by the drama, by the chaos, by the instability, and not be in a position to swoop in and rescue your nephew. Man, that sucks. You can still be there for your nephew in other ways. If you can't take your nephew in full time, you can at least be a place where your nephew can go. You can be a refuge, a place where your nephew can go for three meals in a day, for overnights, for weekends, and you can provide your nephew with some stability, a mental image of stability. As he gets older, these things will become more important to him, a mental image of what a stable life might look like so that he knows that what he has at home, if your sister gets no better, isn't all that's out there or all he could have. It's a tough position to be in, the position you're in. I'm sorry, and you have my support, whatever you decide to do. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. I'm a cis straight woman in her late 20s living in the Pacific Northwest, and I have a question about sex toys. So I recently found out that I have chlamydia, and the other day I was using one of my sex toys, a silicone-covered vibrator, and I washed it with soap and water like always, and I'm wondering, is it safe for me to use it again? Is it possible that I could reinfect myself after treatment or that I could infect a partner with chlamydia? Do I need to throw out the toy? I've never really heard anyone talk about this before, so just hoping that you could shed some light. Sex toys, particularly insertable sex toys, should be washed after each use. And if your insertable sex toy is made out of glass or steel or medical-grade silicone, it is possible to clean that surface. Those are non-porous surfaces, so bacteria can't get into grooves or cracks or tiny little microscopic holes and then leap out at you later or potentially infect another partner. Your silicone-covered vibrator, if you washed it with soap and water, it is safe for reuse. If you're concerned, you can put a condom over it. You can also replace it with the kind of silicone vibrator where the vibrating piece of it can be removed, can be taken out of the silicone casing, and then you can toss 
the silicone, all silicone dildo, if it's a solid silicone dildo, or you can toss the sheath of a silicone vibrator when you can remove the vibrating attachment, toss that into the dishwasher and it's going to get it super duper clean. It's going to heat it up uh, and kill whatever might be on it. But just simple soap and water at the sink for a vibrator you can't throw into the dishwasher is going to clean it if indeed it is made of silicone. The marketing of sex toys and the claims that are made by some sex toy manufacturers aren't subject to FDA approval. And there are unscrupulous actors out there in the sex toy industry. So buy from a reputable dealer, buy from a reputable, preferably woman-owned feminist sex toy shop. Make sure the toy that you're buying, if it's marked as solid silicone, is solid silicone. And then STI or no STI, coming down with an STI, getting that STI treated, it will be safe to use that dildo again, even if you were unwittingly using it on yourself when you had chlamydia. It'll be safe to use that dildo again if it has been properly cleaned, if it is indeed made of silicone and preferably medical grade silicone between uses. And a quick final note about silicone. It's not a rubber. Silicone is made from silica or silica is from sand. So we make silicone dildos and vibrators from sand. Glass is made with sand. Concrete is made with sand. So when you look up and you see a glass and concrete building and you head home and you pull that silicone vibrator out of your drawer, same source material, same stuff went into producing all three of those things, all three of those necessities to human life. Hi, Dan. I'm a sex-positive, single, queer mom of a non-binary, prepubescent penis haver in the Pacific Northwest. This afternoon, I went to check on my kiddo, who was supposed to be doing homework or schoolwork for the past 30 minutes or so. I knocked on the door and waited. They told me they were masturbating and covered up, so I came in the room. I chuckled at their honesty, and they showed me their shorts and underwear and a kind of proof that they were indeed touching themselves. I didn't ask for that proof, by the way. They then told me that they were masturbating for the past 30 minutes and that their penis had been hard for a while. And they were surprised that it went away when I showed up. So we are clearly close. Too close? Well, you're welcome to comment about that, but that's not actually why I'm calling. After my kiddo got dressed and washed their hands, they whispered to me, I want a toy to make me feel good. So do I buy my 11 and a half year old prepubescent kid a cock ring? I think I've decided no, or at least not yet. I want them to explore their body without getting obsessed with some new thing or next toy. This kid already has an ethos that says, bye, bye, bye. But I'm also curious to hear your thoughts. Too close. My answer is too close. My comment is too close. You are too close. You know, mom, there's sex positive and then there's no boundaries. There's sex positive and then there's no respect for someone's privacy. Boundaries are important for sex positivity. Somebody who doesn't know what boundaries are, someone who arrives at puberty and arrives at their first relationships without any concept of boundaries is very likely to violate other people's boundaries. And that doesn't contribute to a culture of sex positivity. That contributes to a culture of sexual violation. It also sets your kid up for failure emotionally, socially, sexually. Don't do that. When you knocked on your kid's door and they said they were masturbating, that was your cue not to walk into the room and verify 
the fact that they were masturbating or to put them in a position where they felt that that was information that you wanted them to share with you. That was your cue to go the fuck away and come back later. Sex positive parents, well, those who are confused about the concept at least, will sometimes think you can't establish boundaries without imparting shame. But a respect for a kid's privacy isn't shaming, it's affirming. Communicating to a kid that mom understands that J.O. time is alone time doesn't create shame. It shows respect. It's fine to have a relationship with a queer sex-positive parent or a straight sex-positive parent where you feel that you can talk to them. You can talk to them about pleasure and self-pleasure and masturbation and, and, and sex toys and relationships and anything else. But, you know, there's a time and a place to have those conversations with your mom and when your dick is in your hand is not the time. And in your bedroom when your dick is in your hand is not the place to have that conversation with your mom or for your mom to attempt to initiate that conversation with you, which is what I suspect consciously or subconsciously was going on. You walked into that room to have that conversation with your kid at a moment that you should not have had that conversation with your kid. My answer to the other question, do you buy an 11 and a half year old penis haver kid a cock ring? My answer there would be, in this instance, no, no, no. A kid, a penis haver, they can make a cock ring out of a scrunchie. They can make a cock ring out of a shoelace. I did it then. If they want a cock ring so badly, they can do it now. I am not opposed to parents obtaining sex toys for kids. I've talked about this on the show in the past. A penis haver or a boy can make an insertable sex toy for themselves by just making a fist and suddenly they have something they can insert their dick into. Somebody with a vagina, a girl in most cases, who wants to experience or play with penetration, wants a penetrative toy, doesn't have that option. And you don't want your daughters using things as penetrative toys that are not safe to use. So in some instances, when we're talking about 15, 16, 17-year-old girls, I have recommended to parents that they help them obtain a sex toy if the kid wants one or if they discover the kid using things as insertable sex toys for experimentation or play or self-pleasure that are dangerous. But just your kid wanting a cock ring? No, no. You have got to start role modeling healthy boundaries for your kid. And one way for you to model healthy boundaries is to not get them a cock ring. No, mom. And of course, the most important way for you to start modeling healthy boundaries for your kid is to establish some. They're almost in puberty. If they're sitting at a computer at age 11, 11 and a half, they know what cock rings are. They're in it. They're probably hurtling into the very first stages of puberty. Once your kid is there, that closed door you knock. There's nothing bad about masturbation. If it's an inconvenient time, if your kid is otherwise occupied, you don't walk the fuck in the room chuckling. You stay the fuck away and wait for your kid to come out of the room and wash their hands. And then if they so wish, initiate a conversation with you about whatever issue they might be having. Mom, 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 too close. Don't set your kid up for failure in the future with their peers, with their future sex partners. Don't, by failing to demonstrate healthy boundaries with your kid, put them in a position where they might, with no malicious intent, violate someone else's boundaries going forward because they can't perceive them. 
Mom, it's boundary time. Hey, Dan, I just moved back with my parents because the relationship with my boyfriend went really bad. In the past, there were already a lot of incidents where my dad got really touchy. We already had several conversations where I told him I don't want him to touch my ass. So now I'm back and even though he doesn't touch me, he makes it seem like he's accidentally touching my ass and my breasts. All those emotions coming up again and I find myself in a really depressed state. And I have a hard time saying this, but I am sexually fantasizing about him and me. All those thoughts and pictures just come up in my mind. And while this is obviously the thing I fear the most, I am having just a hard time to push those thoughts away and to deal with my mind. Do you have any advices, anything that could help me? To deal with my mind until I finally get therapy. Speaking of boundaries, you shouldn't have to have any conversations with your dad about not touching your ass. Um, your dad has really put the zap on your head. I think the term grooming shouldn't be applied in many cases to the way adults treat other adults. As understood, you know, words mean things and grooming is something an adult typically does to a child. And there are really two elements to grooming. One is gaining the child's trust, gaining the family of the child's trust in, in order to eventually violate that trust by sexually exploiting that child. There's a whole other insidious element to grooming though, which is to in some way convince the child that this is what the child, and you're an adult child, but still the child in this circumstance, that this is what the child wants to that's insidious. It, it makes someone feel responsible or complicit in their own abuse or exploitation. And I really feel that that's what your dad has done here. He's really, over the years, and it's been years, probably since before you were an adult, you say that you've had to have these conversations with your father again and again and again about not violating your space, your bodily integrity, by not touching your fucking ass, by not sexualizing his relationship with you. And he's really worn you down and put the zap on your head. And in a moment of maximum vulnerability, in the middle of the pandemic, when you've had to move home after the collapse of a relationship, when you're dependent on your parents again, he starts up again. And you do need therapy. You're going to need some cognitive behavioral therapy. These are intrusive, unwelcome thoughts. A little CBT therapy can help you frame and understand and move past them. But until you can get out of your fucking parents' house, and the sooner you can do that, the better. Better to be sleeping on a couch at a friend's house than to have your own bedroom in a house with your father is doing this to you. The sooner you can get out of your house, the better. In the interim, until you can get out of your house, here's how to think of this. You're not fantasizing about having sex with your dad. Even if you are showing, you're experiencing an arousal response to these intrusive and unwelcome thoughts – what you're doing is you're thinking about what your dad wants you to think about, what your dad has clearly been thinking about for a long time, what your dad is essentially forcing you to think about. These aren't your fantasies. They're his fantasies. For you, they're unwelcome, intrusive thoughts jammed into your head, implanted, forced into your head by your dad. Again, I think grooming is overused. I think the term is 
ironically, I think the term is abused, when it's applied to situations where there's manipulation. But because this has been a long war on your psyche and your sexuality and your bodily integrity by your father, I think the term grooming applies here. And you should – get the fuck away from your dad. You should also get mad at your dad for having done this to you, for having violated you in this way, physically violated you again and again and again, and now has succeeded in violating you mentally, violating your erotic imagination in this way, get mad at him and understand these thoughts, not fantasies, thoughts, as intrusive and unwelcome as your father's fantasies, not your fantasies, and get mad at your dad. Have nothing to do with your dad. Get your ass onto a therapist's couch as soon as you possibly can. Get some cognitive behavioral therapy. It is very good and very effective against exactly these kinds of intrusive and unwelcome thoughts, which are often sexual, and get them out of your head and get past them. But your first and most immediate priority has to be getting the fuck away from your father. You're living at home right now. You're living with your father right now. Do you have other options? Do you have friends that you can turn to? Is there a room you can rent somewhere? Is your mother alive? Is your mother in the picture? Does she know what the fuck is going on? There has to be someone, hopefully, in some cases, there isn't someone that a person can turn to. I hope that you have someone that you can turn to who can provide you with a, a refuge, some place that you can go, some place that you can stay to get the fuck away from your father. The sooner you get the fuck away from your father, the sooner you get into therapy, the sooner you're going to be able to purge these unwelcome and intrusive thoughts from your mind. Again, these are not your fantasies. Do not use that word ever again to describe what's unspooling in your head. Intrusive, unwelcome thoughts. Your father's fantasies crammed into your head by that piece of shit who is sexually harassing and abusing and grooming you. Get the fuck away from him as soon as you possibly can. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Rat Risk Youth. I'm a 30-year-old cis bisexual Latino man, and I'm calling today to ask if there's a difference between Asian fetishization and finding Asian features attractive. So I've been seeing this Vietnamese woman, and after we had sex the other night, she jokingly asked me if I had an Asian fetish. Before I even answered, she started laughing and saying she likes to mess with guys by asking that. I knew her from high school, so she knew that I went to school with a lot of Vietnamese people. So I simply said I know and grew up with way too many Viet people to have any preconceived notions about them. She then went on to talk about how she kind of fetishized Latino men for being passionate in the past, but was working on that, and that wasn't why she was with me. We'll see, on that, see about that, I suppose, but I am passionate, so it might not matter. At any rate, her honesty struck with me, and now I'm wondering something. I don't think of Asian women as submissive or whatever else. In fact, probably the opposite. So many of the Viet women I know are intelligent, outspoken, and passionate. I do, however, find Asian physical features to be attractive. The jet black hair, beautiful eyes, great skin tone. Her honesty made me start questioning my own preferences. I've actually never dated an Asian person before. Man or woman, they've all been white or Latino. I guess I'm asking, does appreciating the specifics of a race equate to fetishizing them? I don't think being able to appreciate the beauty of Asian features or African features or Latino or Hispanic or indigenous features is in and of itself racist. There is a difference between 
fetishizing someone because of their race, fetishizing someone, Asian fetishization, and finding Asian features attractive. I was uh, digging around a little bit. I was reading some articles, and I found one online, Sexual Racism, Intimacy as a Matter of Justice at the University of Chicago Press by Sonu Betty. And they define sexual racism as prioritizing individuals as romantic partners in a way that reinforces ideas of racial hierarchy or stereotypes. That's sexual racism. I would say that expecting someone to conform to cultural stereotypes or perform them for you, that is racist fetishization. You weren't doing any of that. You're attracted to this woman. You're attracted to her in part because of how she looks. She has Asian features. You found her Asian features attractive. You can identify what's unique to many Asians about Asian features, the black hair, the facial features, and you find that attractive. You don't find that attractive because Asian women are submissive. You don't find that attractive because you think it's exotic. You have been around Asian women all your life. You're not exotifying the woman that you were dating or all Asian women. And so, yeah, you're self-conscious of, and that's good. We should all be a little self-conscious. We're racist concerned. We should examine our motives. We should scrutinize our behaviors and our choices, including our erotic ones. And that's to the good. But based on what you describe and, and how you feel, I don't think you're guilty of an act of, sexual racism here or racist fetishization. You know, Stephen Colbert's character on Comedy Central back when he played a right-wing blowhard would say this thing, and it gave him away as kind of a racist, a thoughtlessly racist right-wing blowhard, not that there's anything okay about thoughtless racism as opposed to malicious racism. Both are malignant uh, and do damage. But he would say this thing, I don't see color. That is a cliché. So many white people have said that, so many white people who don't want to confront their own racism or don't want to acknowledge systemic racism will say that, so much so that it's a cliche. It's a racist cliche. Color exists. It's visible. It's important. It's impactful. Color matters. We all see color. Our erotic imaginations also see color too. We're supposed to pretend, I guess, that they don't see color or that preferences that are obviously shaped or limited by prevailing beauty standards, which can be racist and are straight up racist. And a lot of us just accept and internalize these racist beauty standards. And we tell people that people have internalized racist beauty standards. You can only see European features as beautiful, that they have to unlearn that particular kind of sexual racism. Other people's erotic imaginations react to those beauty standards by rebelling, by rejecting them, by transgressing against them. And we tell those people that if their desires tip over into expecting someone of a different race to inhabit a stereotype or our desire for them reinforces a racial hierarchy because we expect them to be submissive or play a certain role that taps into racist stereotypes, we tell those people they're guilty of fetishization in a potentially damaging way. But I think we can all spot the difference between someone saying, and forgive me for saying this, and I apologize, but people used to say this, between someone saying, I have yellow fever, or some gay guy saying, I'm a rice queen, which is a horrible thing that some gay men who are attracted to Asian guys used to say. There's a difference between saying shitty things like that and saying, I think Asian features are attractive. I find Asian people attractive. A kind of perfect erotic indifference, a perfect erotic racial ambivalence 
is impossible. There are certain kinds of features that people are drawn to. And there's generally not a lot of interrogating these kinds of desires when people are drawn to people who are like them or to people who mirror the prevailing Eurocentric beauty standard in the West. And there should be. We should all interrogate our desires. I think the deeper question is, what do you do when you do have fantasies that tap into racial stereotypes? Well, there are people out there who have those kinds of fantasies, but there are people on both sides of that divide who have those kinds of fantasies. These stereotypes are powerful and they loom large in the culture and they're erotically charged. And it's not just white people that, that tap into those kinds of stereotypes. When white people thoughtlessly enforce them or expect that people of color will not just play at these stereotypes consensually in an erotic encounter, but are these stereotypes, that is damaging. But it is also true that sometimes people from marginalized groups, racial or otherwise, get off on stepping into stereotypical roles, having the power to enter and exit them in a way destabilizes them. By entering and exiting them by choice proves that they're stereotypes, that they're social constructs, racist fictions that can be powerfully arousing. And if contained, if compartmentalized with tall firewalls, tall and thick firewalls built around them so that everybody engaging in that kind of play consensually is neither reinforcing these damaging racist stereotypes or harmed by them, I want to say then it's okay, but people aren't waiting around for my permission to engage in this kind of play. When it's play and consensual and thoughtful and interrogated, I think it's, again, I don't want to say aloud. People are going to do it whether I allow it or not. I think it can be a form of healthy sexual expression, again, so long as it's consensual. But that's a we've come a long way from your question is there a difference between Asian fetishization and finding Asian features attractive? Absolutely. And you are evidence of that distinction. You are evidence of that difference. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining us for this What You Got, Dr. Alan Davis, Assistant Professor at The Ohio State University and Johns Hopkins University. Hey, Professor Davis, Dr. Davis, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and the question is, but the question is, what do you got? What did you just publish? Tell us about it. Absolutely. Well, we published a, a clinical trial that we completed uh, where we looked at psilocybin therapy, which is also the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, uh, in context of therapy where we provided about 12 hours of therapy to people and uh, looking at whether it was helpful for their depressive symptoms. And what we found was that, you know, maybe not a surprise to some people that it was helpful for quite a few people in the study. So tripping helps alleviate depression while you're tripping or permanently? 
so for the people in our study, what we found is that we followed them for uh, one month after they finished the treatment, and uh, 54% of the sample was uh, in complete remission from depression after the treatment was completed. We actually are, are also uh, staying in touch with them up to a year after the treatment and are hoping to publish those findings later this year. But what we're seeing is something similar, that quite a few people are staying in remission uh, up to a year after the treatment was over. Okay, this is kind of mind-blowing. It's kind of trippy in that, you know, the we're constantly recommending to people or people are having uh, SSRIs recommended to them. Uh, there are drugs for treatment of depression, but they're a daily course of drugs. They can tank your libido. Uh, people have to sort of play around to find the right antidepressant for them that alleviates their depression, hopefully without tanking their libido. And what you're saying is, tripping on magic mushrooms just once, but in a clinical setting, not, you know, at the movies with friends, may be more effective and long lasting than all of these drugs that people are being prescribed? Yeah, it's certainly possible. You know, these are still early days in terms of the science and and more studies are currently underway. However, the initial sign is that these are about four times more powerful than the effect of the daily antidepressants that people are taking with all of those negative side effects. Uh, I should mention that this treatment was, uh, they actually got two doses of psilocybin uh, across a couple weeks, um, and they get a pretty substantial dose of therapy. So, you know, they're, they're certainly, you know, getting all the good things that one might get from talking to a caring professional, but they also get these two pretty substantial doses of psilocybin. So, you know, if, if this data bears out in these larger and, and uh, multi-site clinical trials that are currently underway, then this could potentially be a game changer for the treatment of depression. Do you guys have any theories, hypothesis, about, or hypothesi, with the plural of hypothesis, about how this works or why this works, or do you just know that it seems to work? So we, we are looking at a couple different mechanisms. Uh, one of the uh, most common things that people describe and that we're seeing in the data is what's called a mystical or spiritual experience that people have during the psilocybin session. And sometimes they also describe getting new insights or new discovery or awareness about themselves or their life or their past or their future. Um, and it, the combination of these spiritual and insight experiences, something that we're calling quantum change, seems to be predicting the antidepressant effects of this therapeutic experience. So uh, it's probably not the only things that are that are helpful. You know, we're actually looking at uh, the brain as well and doing uh, uh, brain scans before and after treatment to see, you know, what's really going on under the hood. And uh, some of the early data from those analyses are showing that there are some changes in the way that different parts of the brain communicate with one another from uh, before to after this treatment that could also be pointing to why it's therapeutic. So I'm sure there are some people out there listening. Depression comes up a lot on the show. Um, people who are in relationship with people who suffer from depression, clinical depression. And of course, get plenty of calls from people who themselves suffer from depression. I'm curious if the subjects of your, of your study, there are 27 people in the study that you're now following for the, for the year. I'm curious as to whether they had had previous experiences with hallucinogenics or mushrooms or acid, or were all 27 of them new to mushrooms. I'm sure there are people out there listening who've done mushrooms and are depressed and are on antidepressants right now wondering why the fuck they have this problem if they've done mushrooms already. Well, you know, it's important to remember that this is not just mushrooms. This is mushrooms with two trained professionals 
who not only are trained in providing a therapeutic psilocybin session, but also are providing about 13 hours of psychotherapy, both before and after the session. So it's not just the, the psilocybin here. It's, so that's obviously a big component of it, but having the, the therapeutic context, having the trained professionals to help you prepare for a therapeutic experience, and then to make sense of it afterwards and actually you know, uncover and, and fully realize these insights that, that sometimes come up uh, is, a, is a critical piece of that. But to answer your question, uh, we, we did restrict uh, entrance into the study to people who either had, you know, maybe only one or two possible hallucinogen experiences a long time ago, weren't very meaningful, uh, but we didn't know it. No one was in the study who had uh, any recent uh, hallucinogen experience. So I want to drill down for just a second on the, the, the thing you keep saying about in this uh, therapeutic session, you kind of walk people through or help people understand the kind of quasi-spiritual or transcendent experience they had on the mushrooms, correct? Yes, it's usually not during the actual session. They're laying on the couch on the actual day, and we do encourage them to go inward and to listen to music and, and have eye shades on and to have whatever experience comes up for them. And it's in the days and weeks after that we uh, engage with them in the therapy part to help make sense of it. Psilocybin Day sounds like fun. It sounds like we should add that to the calendar along with Flag Day and Arbor Day. Um, yeah. So maybe the crucial difference there is the you know being with the professional, helping to understand uh, the epiphanies you had or the experience you had, as opposed to sort of most people who do a recreational hallucinogenic will look back on the experience and say, wow, I was really tripping and not think about it any more deeply. Exactly. And and for a lot of people, when they do recreational psilocybin, they're actually not doing an inward experience. You know, our experiences that we curate are typically with eye shades on. And, and usually people, when they're tripping on uh, mushrooms, they, they enjoy the visuals and kind of looking at nature and kind of being, sometimes being with other people. And, you know, that's a different kind of experience. And it may or may not be therapeutic, but the kinds of experiences we're curating um, have a, a different kind of intention and goal in mind. So, uh, Dr. Davis, if there are folks out there who want to read the study itself, where was it published? Where can they find it? The study was published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA Psychiatry, and this uh, title is Effects of Psilocybin-Assisted Therapy on Major Depressive Disorder, a Randomized Clinical Trial. Uh, and it's also free and available uh, to the public to download. There's no uh, uh, having to pay for it or anything. So we'd love for people to check it out. And where can people find you online? If you want to find me, you can uh, just uh, put in Alan K. Davis, PhD. They can find me at hopkinspsychedelic.org uh, or at the College of Social Work uh, website at Ohio State University. Dr. Alan Davis, Assistant Professor at The Ohio State University and Johns Hopkins University. Fascinating and, and perhaps for many people, life-changing research you've done. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Hi, Dan. My name is Rachel. I am 29 years old and I have been dating my boyfriend for almost three years now. And I love him dearly and unconditionally, but I have been having some issues romantically. He is a little bit unexperienced when it comes to the love department. He just realized this year that he can touch a vagina um, and he doesn't really know his way around. So no oral, no anything other than PIV. And I'm just wondering if there is any advice for the more nuanced, unexperienced 
men in our lives that we love. So I would love your expertise. He does not go down. No oral. No oral. But maybe we can fix that. But I'm hoping that you can help me with my inexperienced boyfriend. You need to take some personal responsibility here. You haven't experienced much else other than PIV with your boyfriend because you haven't asked or demanded anything else from your boyfriend other than PIV for three long years. He's not eating your pussy. Have you asked him to eat your pussy? Have you insisted that he eats your pussy? You've allowed him to experience this one thing that he enjoys, maybe this one thing that he's good at and this one thing that you also enjoy. And then you complain that he's inexperienced. Well, You've had three years to demand that he provide you with different and more varied experiences and you haven't made any demands on him. Now is the time to start making those demands. You can take your inexperienced and anything other than PIV boyfriend and create a boyfriend for yourself who's experienced with all sorts of different kinds of sex by insisting that he be sexual with you in different ways. I would recommend that you take PIV off the menu for at least three months, possibly six months no PIV, oral sex, outer course, sex toys, mutual masturbation, fantasy play, three months, six months of tons of sex, but no PIV. And then after six months, imagine the buildup. Imagine how great, if you both really enjoy PIV, imagine how great PIV is going to be once it goes back into rotation, doesn't replace all of these other things. You're going to keep everything that you two learn and do, all the new experiences that he's had with you. You're going to take all of these things into your sex life going forward, and you're going to bring PIV back, not in place of all of these things, back into rotation with all of these things. So, pussy is closed. Clit, labia, available for action, for oral for mutual masturbation, for toys, his dick available for oral, mutual masturbation, toys, fantasy play, neither pussy nor dick available for PIV, no PIV for three months, at least, ideally even better, six months, no PIV. And at the end of those six months, you will have the more experienced partner that you want and that you could have had years ago if you'd started to make these demands sooner. Hi, Dan. I am a straight female living in the Northeast, and I am 32 and married with a one-year-old. My question is, is my situation grounds for divorce? I have been with my husband since I was 24. When I met him, I didn't really have any idea of who I was and kind of hid who I was as a sexual person. I've had to always make the first move sexually, and I've never, ever felt like he wanted me. I thought it was fine, because all you really need is a nice guy, and and then you get married and have a child. He said he may be asexual a few weeks ago, and I'm starting to see this kind of sexually apathetic nature as more of an indication of who he is as a human being. He had one friend. He completely lost touch with him. He doesn't currently have a job. He lives off his trust fund, and he has very little interaction with the outside world. I thought this was workable and that I could fix him because deep down, he's a great person, very caring, but I'm deeply unhappy, and I'm starting to see I may need to get out. We haven't had sex since our son was conceived two years ago. I've told him how unhappy this makes me and how badly I want a connection with him or anyone. 
I asked him if we could maybe be open, and he said absolutely not, yet refuses to really work on anything sexually. And to be honest, I don't want to have sex with someone like this. I've been forceful, I've been supportive, I've tried everything to make him be a functional person, but it's just becoming impossible and I'm at my wit's end. I work in an industry where I'm constantly surrounded by interesting, smart, cultured people, men, and becoming apparent that I could have options if I wanted. Um, I work through jobs, I try really hard, I'm a pretty helpful partner, but I think the lack of sex is just really eating away at my soul. It's kind of the last straw. I thought for a long time, now that I have a baby or a child, that no one will ever want me again. I'm kind of a ruined woman. That's kind of my sad thoughts about my life. But I'm starting to think that maybe that's not true. Should I think about leaving? Are these real problems? And am I a ruined woman? When you say you hid who you were as a sexual person, do you mean that who you were as a sexual person was so buried under slut-shaming and, and sex phobia in our culture that you didn't know who you were sexually? Or were you actively hiding who you were from your husband? I think I kind of have been indoctrinated into this idea that if you're a woman, then you kind of have to not be sexual. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what my mom's told me. She's like this Jewish lady who's always told me, you know, that you can't be slutty or you can't show that you even want to do anything because then the guy won't like you. So I've just always considered it something that I just cannot talk about. It's very taboo. And and I didn't realize it is something I actually kind of valued in my life, that right. I am a sexual person. So I think that's a problem. So you kind of got set up for failure by your family, by the way you were raised. They yeah. told you not to be sexual, and you ran out and found a guy who wasn't sexual to not be sexual with. I also had a lot of experiences prior to that where I, I was... <laughs> Like my first boyfriend I've ever had in my whole life when I was like 16 years old. He was like the jock of my high school and he was super sexual and used to literally go down on me for like hours. And I never, it never worked for me. It never, I, I was like, I never had an orgasm ever. And then I kind of thought that that would never work for me and it's okay. And clearly I can't have an orgasm. I can't come. So when I met this guy, I was like, okay, this is fine. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. And he seemed like a decent and kind guy and fucking A, he had a trust fund. And so you married him. Yeah. And he's the only guy that's ever, that I've ever dated where it's been like, um, I don't have to take the subway home at one o'clock in the morning because he would get me a car and he cared so much about me and my, my weird insecurities and the fact that like I was this child actress slash model. He completely like soothed all my insecurities and was and he would always write me and always text me and make sure I was okay. And it's like really a soothing relationship. And it was okay that I had to constantly be the one to try to have sex when we did have sex. It's just as I, um, you know, so as a straight woman, I am not really somebody who's very dominant when it comes to sex. So it's mm-hmm. been kind of difficult for me for the past eight, 10 years where my entire sexual experience really has been me having to constantly ask someone to have sex with me. I bet you wish you could get in a time machine and go just spend a weekend with your jock high school boyfriend who ate your pussy for hours. And who still texts me all the time, <laughs> all the time asking oh, me to do that. Okay. And, then, and then something that happened recently is, and I think it was a few days after I spoke to you, I tried that day. I was like, I was like, Hey, you know, the baby's sleeping. Can we try to have sex? Like, 
let's go to my parents' room because we were staying at my parents' house. And he, I wake him up. I'm like all excited. I get ready. And he's like, what are you doing? Go away. He's like, come on, it's early in the morning. And my heart just dropped. And I was like, I think I need to leave this relationship because if you don't have a job, I'm the only person who works. And then another part of this is I, I got in contact or there was this man that I used to see before I was with my current husband. And he was 51 years old now. And he was extremely hot, probably the hottest guy I've ever been with. So into me sexually, so smart, so he's like amazing. And he wrote me this whole long like sonnet and uh, I read it on my email. Of course he has like an AOL email address because he's 51. And Hey, wait, wait, I'm 56 and I don't have an AOL email address, but but do go on please. No. And he's like, he's, he's not, he's bi. And he's always been so upfront with me about from the second I met him when I was 24 and he was in his forties, he's always been so into me sexually. And there's something that really scared me and it kind of made me run away from him and go to my current husband. But the things he writes that he, that he like would write to me were so graphic. And now I look back at them and I'm like, why was I so, it's like, what's wrong with me with my insecurities that I made such a ridiculous decision. And I'm stuck in this life for eight years where I really don't have sex. And I don't know if I I just don't know what to do. I, you I mean, should, talk, you, you should uh, slow down. You should leave this relationship. You should end this relationship. You should divorce your husband. A marriage license is not a sexual suicide pact. One person doesn't get to declare another person's sexual life over. You say your husband now identifies as asexual, which is fine. But I think if somebody who comes to realize that they're asexual made a commitment earlier in their lives that was explicitly sexual, especially if they wanted a monogamous commitment after they realize that they're asexual or come out as asexual, the relationship needs to end or the relationship needs to change. So the other person in the relationship who is sexual can get their needs met elsewhere consensually. It can become an ethically non-monogamous relationship. If you're talking to the guy who was eating your pussy in high school and you're talking to this elderly, 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 ancient 51-year-old man with the AOL email account, you're on the verge of cheating on your husband and blowing your marriage up. I feel like a horrible person. Well, you're not a horrible person. You have sexual needs and desires that have been frustrated. And there's only so long you can go on in a relationship being rejected before that just shreds your ego and your self-esteem. And and another part of it is I've said to this man that I'm married to, can I please please be with someone else then? Because another part of this is I have a child. I'm, I'm in my early 30s. But like, I kind of think I'm damaged goods. Who no, will you're not, you are not, wait, you are not damaged goods and you know it. How many people out there, how many examples in your own life do you have of people who had children, divorced, and then found new partners? Nobody. Is, my, my mom, my mom and wait, dad have been together forever. My grandparents nobody, have you have, forever. you have no friends who had children, no. divorced, remarried. Okay, make new friends, no. make more friends, read some books, oh. watch some movies. What I'm talking about, you know, getting a start again in life after divorce, even if you have children, isn't unheard of or that uncommon. And so if you go seek examples of that, you will find it and be able to conceive of a life for yourself. After the divorce, you're either going to get because you do it the right way And you get a divorce because of irreconcilable differences, because you're not sexually compatible, 
or you're going to go cheat on your husband, get caught, and then you're going to be the bad guy in the divorce. You're so smart. But do you think that sexual issues are a reason to end a marriage? Yes. Like, I feel like yes. the sexual issues aren't just the sexual issues because it speaks to some level of compatibility. That's exactly. Being sh- that's, like, I remember being 25 years old, and I'm not disgusting. I'm not like, I'm not super unattractive. Okay. I remember being 25 years old, being in bed next to my then boyfriend, who's now my husband and literally being so, I would, like, I would go to sleep, not to be graphic, but super horny. And I would just be like, I wish he would just touch my vag. Why did you marry him? I think my mom always told me like, no one's perfect. And who else are you going to get? Like some banker douchebag who's going to cheat on you. Stop listening to your mother and start listening to this faggot. Sexual compatibility in a sexually exclusive relationship. Mutual sexual fulfillment doesn't mean you get everything you want whenever you want it, but enough of what you want to feel sexually fulfilled and content is important. And you are not just allowed to prioritize that, you are foolish if you don't prioritize that. To say to people, you can only do this thing in the context of this relationship, this thing that is crucially important to a human being's sense of self and satisfaction and contentment. You can only do this thing in this relationship, but if that thing doesn't work, well, there are other things. No, it's a crucially important thing. And so many people wind up getting divorced because they didn't prioritize sexual compatibility because they felt like that would make them dirty sex perverts. If that was putting too much importance on sex, you're an example of what happens when you don't put place any importance on sex before you make a commitment, get married, scramble your DNA together, have a kid, Get a divorce. Please do it now. Please do it right. You have grounds. Sexual abandonment. Really? Oh, my God. Yes. I was looking. I was like, are there people with kids who want to get divorced? And I couldn't even find anything to my bizarre situation because a lot of times people get divorced and it's not just like, oh. Lady, why do you think there are custody battles? If, if nobody with kids gets divorced, why are there custody battles? I feel like only Liv Tyler and Kate Moss get divorced. And then have lives. Everyone else is like a sad single mom who like has to move to Kentucky and like work at Seven Eleven. And I don't want to move to Kentucky and work at Seven Eleven. You that that is not going to happen to you. It doesn't sound like if your husband has a trust fund, I think you might be okay after the divorce. There will be child support payments. I don't need him to support me either. I I'm I'm the sole person. Like I have a whole career. Okay, you go 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 to call the divorce. You shouldn't be on the phone with me. You should be on the phone with the divorce lawyer. I really love you. I'm going to tell my mom every. Actually, I'm not going to tell my mom anything. I should stop talking. To You're her. in this predicament because of your mom. Don't tell your mom. Don't ask for your mom for permission to divorce the husband who has neglected you sexually and has told you that you're not allowed to get your sexual needs met elsewhere and he's not going to meet them. That's fucked up. That's a kind yeah, of abandonment. I wouldn't hear if he, yeah. And he's also spoken about potentially being gay. He, he said he. He once was like he had this incident with his his best friend, and so I've been like, why don't you explore that? I do not care. I would be very happy if you did something like that. Like I don't, I actually wouldn't care. But then on my end, he is neglectful of any of my needs and won't let me explore anything outside of him. Okay, back so to the same answer. Divorce the motherfucker already. Get a divorce. Get on the phone with a lawyer. Get a divorce. Don't tell your mom until after you filed. 
Oh God, this is just life changing. Thank you so much. I you're, know you have to go. You're welcome. I feel so much better that you were able to. I'm, I'm, and I'm really grateful. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I am a 22 year old female calling from the West Coast. I've been sleeping with my ex for over a year. We text every day. We see each other like once a week and hook up. And it's really just all about him when we hook up. Like I go over there, we talk for a few minutes, we hook up. I like don't get foreplay. Then I leave. There's a lot of other problems. It's not just the sex, but there's a lot of other things. And I'm like, I know this. I just need to end this relationship. It's just so hard because I love him so much as a person. It's just hard to end things. So he just recently stopped talking to me for two weeks. And in that two weeks, I started selling my content to a sugar daddy. And he sent me a letter. My ex-boyfriend sent me a letter. And we started talking again. And we're going to talk in person to resolve our issues. And I'm just wondering if this is something I need to tell him about me selling my content because it's like we're not even dating, but I feel like I do owe him that disclosure. But at the same time, I feel like I don't owe him that because we're not dating. And he was not talking to me for two weeks. And I also want to keep selling my content because I got a lot of money and I need that money right now. So I'm just wondering what you think I should do. I know, Dan, if you knew the whole situation, you would tell me to dump the motherfucker already. But it's so hard to dump the motherfucker when I love him. What do I do, Dan? I want to tell you, of course, to end this relationship. That's what you need to do. You obviously know you need to do that. But there's no relationship here to end. Dudes, your ex, you've been fucking your ex or your ex has been fucking you. You've been showing up at his apartment over the last year to have, so he can basically jack off inside you. He provides you with no foreplay. I can't imagine if he's providing you with no foreplay that you're getting anything out of this, that you're coming from these encounters. So basically you've been his fleshlight for a year. He's been using you. And over the last two weeks, when he stopped talking to you and you began to sell your content, for a lot of money, money that you need, obviously the choice is to keep selling the content for the money that you need. And you don't answer to your ex. Maybe you can get together with him and have some quote unquote closure. Talk about the end of this relationship. If you want to see how he reacts, disclose the fact that you've been selling content for money that you need. But can you trust him? You don't tell me anything about it. You say you love him. I love him. You love him, but you don't give us any details. Is he an asshole? Do you think he'd retaliate against you? Do you think he'd be shocked? Do you think he would slut shame you? If he knew that you were doing this thing that you're doing, that you've enjoyed doing, that you've benefited from doing, that you don't feel any shame about doing, would he not want to see you anymore? If that's the case, if knowing that you've been selling your content, whatever your content might be, to a sugar daddy would so turn this guy off or make him so angry that he never wanted to see you again, I would urge you to disclose that fact to your ex. So your ex can be your XX. I guess an XX is a current. So your ex could be your XXX. Yeah. End this relationship by any means necessary. Just stop talking to him. Tell him it's over. If that's the best way to end it. If telling him that you've been selling your content to a sugar daddy is a more effective way to end it. If he's not going to want anything to do with you ever again, after learning that, by all means, disclose the fact that you have been doing sex work over the last couple of weeks that you haven't been hearing from him. And one way or another, hopefully, 
you'll never hear from him again. Hi, Dan. I'm a 47-year-old straight woman who lives in the Northeast. I'm a regular listener, and I always hear you talk about how women are able to have multiple orgasms. So I've been sexually active for more than 30 years. I've always had a very satisfying sex life, and I've had multiple partners, but I have never been multi-orgasmic. In fact, I've been told by male partners that I, quote, come like a man, end quote, meaning that when I come, it's a big orgasm, and I need a refractory period if I'm going to be able to come again. I feel satisfied with my one orgasm. There have been times in my life when I've had several orgasms in a 24-hour period, but that's more unusual than normal. I've never had trouble having an orgasm. I can come by myself or with a partner. So here's my question slash issue. I really don't think that all women are multi-orgasmic. Or if we are, how can I be? I'm not sure that you're doing women a service by telling us all that we are multi-orgasmic. Just like we are all different in what turns us on and gets us off, I think that we are all probably different in the way that we come. When it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm. And when it comes to males and females and making generalizations about 3.54 billion of one and 3.54 billion of the other, there are going to be hundreds of millions of exceptions. And the exceptions are no less, if they identify as male or female, male or female than the folks who sit at the very center of the bell curve. There are women out there who are one and done. There are women out there who struggle to have orgasms at all, but still enjoy sex and don't feel that not being orgasmic in a recognizable way makes them defective. And indeed, they're right. They're not. I have sometimes said women are multi-orgasmic because broadly and generally speaking, women are, not all women. Men are typically one and done. We have heard from guys who do not have refractory periods. So it's true that not all men are one and done. Your orgasms, I'm sure, are great. They're valid. You are not required to continue to have orgasms after you've had the one that you enjoy and that your body has a more sort of male typical refractory period doesn't make you less a woman and doesn't mean you don't enjoy sex and doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or doing orgasms wrong. And I honor and validate and am here centering your style. And I apologize if you've been made to feel defective that you don't have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm, one right after the other in rapid succession. Not all women do. Not all women are required to. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Cyborg Space Cat tweeted, listening to Dan Savage on the Savage Lovecast this week, fielding a feeder call, and I couldn't help but think an opportunity was missed several times to say, you can have your kink and eat it too. All right, I didn't say it, Cyborg Space Cat, but Stephen Forrest, an alert listener, he said it for me. Stephen tweets, regarding the feeder gainer kink call, Dan, when you said you can have your kink, I said, and eat it too out loud. Thank you, Stephen, for picking up the slack. Alex Wish tweeted, as I was listening to the Savage Lovecast today, I looked at my butt plug and almost said, get ready because you are going into the refrigerator today. And finally, Villain at Villain Report tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, you are a pervert and you are encouraging other people to ruin their lives in perversion. 
Calm down, villain. There are lots of ways to ruin your life, but enjoying kinks safely and sanely with other consenting adults, which is what I advocate, that's not one of them. People who drink too much, they destroy their lives and their livers. People who get tied up too much or wear too much rubber gear, refrigerate their butt plugs too often, they are not destroying anything except the occasional hole. And then only temporarily. Holes bounce back. Livers don't. Okay, thanks to everyone who posted to their social media accounts about the show last week, even you, villain. And if you want to make sure that I see and possibly read your tweet on next week's show, be sure to use the hashtag SavageLoveCast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I couldn't stop thinking about the woman who was describing her husband and his interest in anal sex. My advice to her is to buy herself a big old strap-on. And every time he wants to have anal sex to fuck him in the ass instead. I think every guy who penetrates should be penetrated so that he has some sense of what it feels like, when he might be in the mood for it, and how to warm someone up before he does so. This is for the woman with the kinky partner. Dan was too nice about this. You need to dump his big pegged ass. This doesn't sound like a relationship. This sounds like he's a narcissist sex addict who is manipulating you. You shouldn't be fighting about how you're not GGG enough. You don't need to prove your love to him through sex. If he needs it so bad, he can find a sex worker instead of constantly guilt-tripping you. Hey, Dan. I have some ideas for your back-to-back callers on episode 759 who were trying to reasonably incorporate some extreme fetishes in their relationships. For the woman exhausted by her male partner's uh, indefatigable appetite for extreme anal play, he needs to buy a fuck machine. Look them up. There are lots of them, but this way he can experience extreme penetration whenever and however he wants it. And for the gay guy conflicted over his appetite for obesity play, buy a fat suit. Thanks, Dan, for all you do to bring integrity to relationships of every shape and size. A sad note before we end this week's show. Mistress Velvet, a proud black femme professional dominatrix, a sex worker's rights advocate, and a recent guest on the Savage Lovecast, died unexpectedly earlier this month. I was lucky enough to get to talk with Mistress Velvet about her unique and really radical approach to professional domination. She commanded her mostly white male clients to read the works of Audre Lorde and other black feminists. We talked on episode 719 of the Savage Lovecast. I really enjoyed speaking with Mistress Velvet. I was hoping we'd get to meet up in person after the pandemic ended, and I was just... So, so sorry to learn of her death. My condolences go out, my heart goes out to Mistress Velvet's family, to her friends, and to her many communities. All right, we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? You can call us at 206-302-2064 and leave a voicemail, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Magnum subscribers, Magnum subs, mark your calendars. Our next SAC Lunch is Thursday, June 3rd at noon Pacific time. SAC Lunch is our new monthly virtual hangout for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. If you aren't already a Magnum subscriber and want to enjoy ad-free shows with more questions, more answers, more guests, and be able to join us every month for SAC Lunch, go to savagelovecast.com to become a Magnum subscriber today. And while you're on the internet, head over to HumpFilmFest.com to get your tickets for Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 3. You've only got a few more chances to catch these 20 sexy, kinky, dirty, funny short films. We got your sexy centaurs, your buttered toast, your musical comedy about piss play. This hump has got it all. Go to HumpFilmFest.com to get tickets now. 
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for coming.